From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today, we're talking to two of our experts about their latest research on deal synergies and how the most successful acquirers have built a winning formula for value creation in M&A. Andy West is a senior partner in our Boston office and co-leads our global M&A practice. He served leaders in the healthcare, medical devices, high-tech, and industrial sectors on all aspects of deal-making, divestitures, and integration. Jeff Rodnicki is a partner, also based in our Boston office, who leads our knowledge efforts on capturing value and synergies from M&A. His client work focuses on large mergers and acquisitions across a range of industries. Andy, Jeff, welcome. Andy, let me start with you. What questions were you looking to answer in this latest research on synergies? About 10 years ago, uh, in our M&A practice, we were thinking about value creation. You're looking at data that was showing trillions of dollars literally flowing through uh, M&A in terms of uh, capital reallocation, in terms of cash put to work. And you know, we were wondering why you know, is there so little in terms of actual insights around value creation? And we started a piece of work called the Global 1000 at that time, which sought to look at why do companies do M&A, what are the real success rates? And you know, it debunked myths that hopefully most of you as active deal makers have already uh, dispelled over time, but things like 70% of all deals fail, uh, you know, M&A is uh, a poor return for the money relative to organic acquisitions. An offshoot of that was synergies. And frankly, when we looked at synergies, we realized there are just too many assumptions following too much money, and that there was just too poor of a translation, too much leakage between the concept of buying a company and actually then turning that acquisition into expectations, whether it's internal or external, turning those expectations into budgets, and then ultimately turning those budgets into cash flows. And so we set up what we call Synergy Lab, which is a group that focuses 100% of its time on synergies. That's all they think about. We're going to share with you some of the more counterintuitive ideas that we found in looking at synergies over the last several years. Jeff, what are some of the most common concerns clients have about synergies, especially related to big transactions? It's a big deal that's going to distract people. Uh, it's going to take a lot of their bandwidth, and it's going to maybe uh, help them lose their focus on the core business. Uh, so I think that that's very, very common. And then, and many of your executives get consumed by this large deal, and that's. That's one of the leading factors for why um, those large deals on, on average underperform for, for what you pay. I think the balance between how many people and to what degree do you include people in, in deep diligence, the number of deals we do where the head of commercial wants to sit on the steering committee is unbelievable and it says, no, 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 you head of commercial, you, you know, sales leader, keep selling, keep meeting with customers. Um, we'll bring you in and make sure that you're consulted and, 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 and advising on certain things that affect your business, but we'd rather not have you sit in a steering committee for three hours a week. And, and, then, and then the transition to integration planning, when you need to include people, that, that's a common question and in a, in a, in a hard-to-balance topic. Um, if folks aren't included, they might not believe in the deal, they might not believe in the synergy opportunity, and then, you, and then all of a sudden you're, um, you're, you're at a setback when it comes to value capture. What does your research suggest are the main issues to consider when assessing synergy potential in deals? Number one is protecting base business. So we do think when considering synergies, it's important to understand that anything you do needs to consider the investments required, the management time and attention required, the activities required to make sure that you do not 
destroy value in either the asset you're acquiring or your core asset. In fact, when we look at large deals and performance on very, very big mergers and things that start to approach mergers of equals, which is a term we don't really you know, often believe in, but as you get to be very, very large deals, this is actually ends up being one of the biggest swing factors, right, in terms of value creation. But, you know, the base business, protecting base business momentum uh, can be a very, very important lever when talking about synergies, albeit not explicit, for example, uh, typically in the deal model. As you move up, you get the combinational synergies next, right? What it reflects is the synergies associated with bringing two organizations together and eliminating redundancy. As you get to the top transformational opportunities, we do think, particularly with larger deals, this is a real opportunity. We do strongly believe that these can be a make-or-break type set of synergies and absolutely something you should go after, even sometimes at the expense of maybe combinational synergies if the value is going to be there. If you look at the levers, we talk about cost, capital, and revenue. We think all three are important. Those are the ones that you typically go for. These tend to be the ones that are very, you know, combinational or overlap-like in focus, whether it's G&A reduction, whether on the, the revenue side it's cross-selling, um, or on the capital side it's CapEx and working capital management. Most companies are very familiar with, have a pretty good track record of calculating and do a pretty good job of, of frankly, understanding how much to pay for and how to allocate that. As you get into what we call transformational costs, transformational capital, transformational revenue, and frankly, all kinds of revenue, you know, that gets to be a bit more of a gray area. But we do think it's important to think about all of these at various points in the process, not just in the strategy. Jeff, anything that you'd add about the different synergies and how to approach them? I think people don't pay enough attention on average to capital opportunities. You see quite a number of people talking about cost opportunities, and that's a little bit easier. We just talked about revenue. Capital, how do you think about working capital, CapEx efficiency in light of a deal um, can be a real, a real value driver. And then let's say uh, companies that are aspirational when they do a deal often put too much into the transformational opportunity bucket. They pick four or five or six large-scale transformational opportunities to pursue, um, and that can often distract from, you know, kind of base business combinational opportunities. Um, so it's a balance. You should use the transaction as an opportunity to transform but, but oftentimes companies overdo it. Andy and I would add, I would add a couple things on revenue synergies. They take longer to realize more often as, as opposed to, you know, a cost synergy can be a day one savings. They require investment. Sometimes, you know, you have to actually put, put money and invest in salespeople into a new geography or whatever the, whatever the revenue synergy is. And then the third, the third is it can be hard to track, right? I'd assume that synergy potential can be very different in different types of transactions. Is, is that right? Yeah. As you think about the types of synergies, it's also important to understand how the different categories of synergies apply to the type of deal you're doing. And, you know, our clients often will fall into a trap, particularly those that are highly acquisitive, which is a bit counterintuitive. If you've been doing one type of deal over and over again, the organization gets grooved in terms of how you think about value creation. And then if you change your play, you do a different type of deal something's lost in translation, or existing habits become bad habits, right, as you approach a particular asset in maybe a way that is only consistent with your previous deal and, and should be uh, applied based on the rationale for the current deal. How do you segment the different types of deals, and, and how do these categories affect one's approach to both identifying and capturing synergies? On one side, you've got relative size, which we do think matters in terms of risk and how you think about it. Uh, and the execution challenges associated with going after synergies. And then you have, you know, a, a scale that says, you know, how much do you need to ex expand your current capabilities to realize value? 
So if you see things like really big industry, industry consolidation, you know, two companies that do the same thing, same manufacturing footprint, buying each other, a lot of cost energies, right? Really focusing on the combination, really focusing on maintaining business momentum. You know, that is, uh, that is the heart of it. And, um, you know, it's a very, very different play and approach. And if you do something like a corporate transformation, right, which is big, yet really pushing into new business, into an adjacency, into a different, different vertical or a different part of your value chain. And, you know, the whole mindset around synergy changes. So you kind of migrate away from traditional synergies, combinational synergies, the things that are much more tactical to execute, and then get into much more strategic questions like Jeff just mentioned. You know, how are we allocating capital? Are we allocating behind the strategy, right? If you have an IP acquisition or new business model, very rarely the deal itself can afford all of the investment that's required to build a new business. So you'd be asking the question, are we creating enough synergy, right? But if it's a capability transfer, the other question you need to ask yourself is, are we finding the extra $100 million, $500 million to properly fund and reinforce those capabilities in our current organization to start a transformation? So you have two things to take away. One is, you know, make sure you're all talking about synergies the same way and you're using common terms and you're thinking about all of the sources of value. And then step two, make sure that as you're thinking about a specific deal or a specific M&A strategy, you're understanding how both the mix and the relevance of those different synergy levers might change so that the organization isn't talking past each other or the organization isn't on a particular track right, in terms of synergy calculation or realization, that's inappropriate for the deal at hand. You recently surveyed M&A practitioners on their experience with synergies and reviewed nearly 400 deals. Can you walk us through some of your main findings from that research? The first one's a little counterintuitive. So only about 20% of companies, and these are large deals, are actually announcing their synergies publicly, despite evidence that companies that do perform significantly better. So in other words, the companies that announce are doing better two years after the, the deal. Their, their overall company performance is, is better than, the peer, that, than their peers that do not. We get a question a lot on, okay, I want to announce, but internally I want to have a buffer. The fact is there'll be some slippage, we'll decide to reinvest, and, and that's common. That's common even in you know, high-performing organizations. And so, so we get a question as to what's the typical buffer. Um, and we have a bunch of proprietary data where we compare you know, how their targets differ from what's been announced publicly. And what we see is a pretty wide delta, but, but consistently a buffer from 30 to about 100%. On average, the buffer is around 50%. So it's $100 million. An internal target will be something like $150 million. We do see quite a wide variety. We've seen companies that, you know, frankly, are several hundred percent over, so you have $100 million uh, of a target, and you actually use this as a transformative event to take, you know, maybe you loop in an, an additional transformational program or cost program that you were considering anyways, and you say, look, if we're going to redesign the organization, Let's go and do what we always have been talking about. And that's when you see, you know, targets 400% sometimes above what's been externally announced. Thanks, Jeff. Can you offer any guidelines on what synergy levels companies making acquisitions should be aiming for? One thing we get a lot at Synergy Lab is tell me the benchmark. Tell me the benchmark. We're, we're about to do a deal. What's the benchmark for how much GNA I can take out? And, and while there are some reasonable rules of thumb, Again, when we look at internal data of how companies are actually setting targets, you see a massively wide variety. And, and, and I think relying on benchmarks really misses the deal-specific opportunities. Where is the company that you're acquiring at in terms of you know, their GNA evolution? Where are you at? Uh, what are your aspirations for this deal? And what is the deal archetype? And by aspirations, I mean, um, are you going to use this 
this this opportunity to create a you know world class you know shared services type facility where you outsource or offshore much of your GNA. Um, or has the company already done that? The company you've acquired already has done that. Because if they have, the deal value, the deal opportunity is going to be quite a bit lower. So I think here we're going to try and debunk using a one-size-fits-all um, outside-in benchmark. So what we've done here is look at deals in the pharma industry and say, what percent of synergies came out of the target company finance organization, and how does it vary between about 10 deals? And what what we find is that. You know, on average, about 50% of costs are coming out from the finance industry, so if you're for in the finance function. So if you're acquiring a finance function that has $50 million worth of finance costs, and, and your company has presumably $50 million plus because you're probably bigger, $25 million on average are coming out. Now, but we see a wide variety. And so giving you that $25 million or building that $25 million into your deal model or into your target is missing quite a bit of nuance of both your company and the company you're acquiring. So what we see in, among these 10 deals is a 6x difference in terms of companies on the low end of what they take out, which is quite little, 13% of the finance function, and, and companies on the high end, which are taking out almost all of what they acquired. So I think the so what is, one, quantifying synergy potentials is not a benchmarking exercise. Two, really be thoughtful on the assumptions. If you have a one-size-fits-all synergy uh, set of assumptions across three different companies, it's probably wrong. Is there anything else you'd warn companies about, things you see as caveats around announcing and pursuing synergies? What a company pays for an asset does not and should not equate to synergies, synergies targeted. Obviously, synergies are going to be one of the things that inform what a company pays for an asset, but there are a bunch of other things that should inform that, and synergies versus um, premium actually aren't correlated significantly. If you look at the data, you don't see significant correlation between what a synergy is and the EBITDA multiple or the premium offered. And this is going to be more relevant in certain industries if you're where cost synergies aren't really going to be a factor in, in terms of the multiple or the or the value creation story, then then synergies are not going to be correlated at all with the multiple. And things like tech, you know, competition, the, the industry dynamics, other things like that are really going to inform the premium paid, not the synergies. Does the speed with which you pursue and capture synergies matter? You know, a good rule of thumb is on most things, in particular on headcount, you really want to move fast. And how do you avoid business disruption? How do you avoid just losing momentum on your base? You move fast. And the companies that do this well, they get past that really messy, always messy integration phase and move to business as usual as fast as possible so that their core operators can, can, can pivot back and really focus on delivering the core business. Um, so I think having done this now for a long time, the thing I've been most correlated with, with performance is just moving fast and being 80-20. Companies that go bottoms up and very methodical will often miss the chance to capture value. The rule of thumb we typically give is 18 months. You should have the, the vast majority. Are there going to be things that have a long tail? Again, like IT systems, like network consolidation, like facility uh, footprint consolidation and optimization? Yes. Most headcount should be achieved quickly. Um, in fact, most headcounts can be achieved within 100 days of close. You know, most of our clients that are doing large deals that have some component of a, you know, a close period of, say, three to six months are actually aspiring to, to name three levels down by close or on close. And so that just gives you a sense of how fast clients are moving now. The only thing I would say is just qualitatively, it is surprising how uncorrelated this is with the deal thesis. Even on the revenue side, I mean, this is all about running the business, getting in the way. Organization can't 
afford to be schizophrenic for very long. No, nobody can. And what's going to happen is a dominant culture, a dominant business, something's going to emerge. So you've got limited time to basically settle into business as usual, regardless of thesis. So just moving quickly, obviously don't hurt the asset. If you're ring fencing it, that's a completely different conversation. But speed really is surprisingly, surprisingly important in terms of getting synergies. return to our interview in a few seconds. In the meantime, we wanted to let you know about our upcoming episode on innovation. This is a topic that's very popular among users of our website. It's also heavy on theory and sometimes not as heavy on practical approaches. Eric Roth, the head of our innovation practice, recently sat down with someone who'd been leading innovation at scale for quite a while and has very practical experience to share. Her name is Beth Comstock, and she's the former vice chair of General Electric and author of the recent book, Imagine It Forward. We hope you can join us, and if you're not already a subscriber to Inside the Strategy Room, you can do so with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Now, let's get back to our interview. What are some of the biggest reasons that synergy estimates end up either unrealistically high or too low? Do you have any specific guidelines on the rigor that companies need to apply to things like due diligence around estimating? Yeah, I would say two things. I think one is, you know, there's a big difference between what you pay for and what you go for, right? And too often, the governance around the deal process keeps those two dialogues from happening. So what I mean by that is what you're willing to pay for outside and when you don't own an asset, and you have to risk factor in the unknown, right? And that goes to the board, and that's a very, very active decision-making process. All the executives are typically aligned if it's a big enough deal, right? Then what happens is then you own the asset. And operating risk and financial risk are two totally different things. But the re-risking of the asset, right, of saying, guys, you know, yeah, we're only willing to pay for $100 million, you know, uh, of, of synergies, but there's 500 there, and let's take some risk, right? Let's, let's go for it. That conversation never happens, right? So issue number one is there is no re-risking of the asset. You get locked in because management, you know, the, the board, you know, you, you get grooved on that number, and that is the right number in terms of what you'd want to pay often or close to the right number. But you never go back and re-litigate that and say, guys, as an operator, we're willing to take a hell of a lot more risk, and therefore, we're going to actually up our numbers and up our expectations. So I would say that that is one component. The other component is people are hedges on hedges, right? So I've got a hedge on you know, the diligence number, and I talk to a guy who puts a little bit of hedge on it, and then we put a little hedge in the budget. You, know, you multiply all those things together and you end up with a number that's just frankly too low. And so, again, it's about breaking that. And coming back in and saying, I need to know very specifically how value is being created and get rational numbers, not a number that's been filtered through you know, eight different channels and, and had a little bit taken out of it every single time. Two things I would add is sometimes that conservatism, that hedge upon hedge, will actually really hamstrung your organization from making acquisitions, right? You'll put a hedge upon a hedge, and all of a sudden the deal value doesn't work, and you, you get, you know, you get and another company makes the acquisition. And so that's not to say you shouldn't have some inherent conservatism and sort of only put bankable, very confident numbers into your deal. But if you start hedging upon hedging 
or um, you know, bringing in a leader who's, who's just being very conservative and doesn't want to overpromise and underdeliver, it really can affect your number of opportunities. But I think the second thing is translating a deal model into an integration target. There really is an art there, and it requires change management. It requires real leadership. You can have, let's just say, you can have a head of IT who was brought into a deal model or a deal conversation to look at the system footprint um, and the roadmap for a company you're acquiring as well as the synergy opportunity. That person could have gotten comfortable and say there's $10 million worth of opportunity. Now that you've made the acquisition, you really want to think quite a bit bigger and getting that person aligned to a, bro- a bolder and broader aspiration, not only on technology roadmap, but also on synergy capture is really in our in leadership and change management, getting them to think much, much bigger. And how about cultural differences? Where does that fit in assessing different deal archetypes? Does it present a potentially large barrier to realizing synergies? It is absolutely a critical factor, but it's more important in some types of deals than others, right? One is you know, being able to tap into a culture to realize value. First, you have to recognize very early in, in the deal process, is culture going to be a determinant for you going forward? Sometimes you're buying a new culture. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're absorbing someone. So first is understanding, like, what what are you getting out of it? Trying to buy a culture or trying to change your existing culture uh, as a result of a transaction is possible, but it's very, very hard. And you have to be really honest with yourself. What about the culture of the target do you need to keep, do you need to preserve? And you've got to really actively manage that, right? Otherwise, it's an onboarding. And sometimes the value comes from onboarding, in which case what you need to do is make sure that you are thinking about, do we have the capacity? Are we the type of company that is going to be easy to work with for a new, newly onboarded employee? Those are things like, is role clarity high at my company? I mean, are people's jobs their jobs? Is my rewards, recognition and rewards something, something that's transparent? Or if we acquire somebody, is it really hard to figure out how things get done? Do leaders give very you know, specific direction at my company or not? There are things that you know about your own organization. I think the vast majority of deals are onboarding events. And having an honest dialogue about your own culture, is it easy to come in and have a level playing field, will be a determinant as to whether you get synergies. Now, I would say typically cost is less a function of culture in the near term, uh, and revenue is much more because, it, you know, cost is kind of, it gets to be very tactical. You bring people in, often you let people go at the acquired company. Merging the cultures is typically less relevant. But like I said, you should ask yourself some hard questions. Are we the kind of company that is good at acquiring? Because are we the kind of company that brings in employees and makes them successful? And if not, that's probably a question you should ask yourself before you go out and spend billions of dollars on, on acquisitions. I would add, it can really affect synergies if, you know, let's say the, your culture has a has a target setting and achievement culture where you get a number and you deliver that number. And the company that you're acquiring has less accountability. The targets are more of a suggestion. Getting in the range is typically seen as good enough. That's where we often see differences manifest in terms of value capture. The other thing I would add is companies are often very bad outside in estimating the cultural differences between themselves and the potential target. The number of times we have heard these guys are just like us. These guys seem like great guys. Several of them used to work for us, and so they really get and understand our culture. That's often a recipe for they used to work there. They hated it. They're now um, out there to compete and beat you, and so they're, and they built a, or a part of a leadership team that's quite different than the one that they left. So, therefore, getting a common understanding of how much culture is going to matter here, sometimes it doesn't. If you're making an IP acquisition, 
if you're keeping the business totally separate, having a different culture might be totally fine. Let's let's dig a little deeper on the point you made earlier about synergy announcements. Why do some companies announce the synergies they expect? And why do you think these companies deliver higher total returns to shareholders? So we talked about that only 20% of companies announce synergies, you know, roughly 80% of deals, and this is a, this kind of three years worth of deals, about almost 2,500 deals. Only about 450 of them actually announced cost synergies. The number that actually announced revenue synergy or provided revenue synergy information is even smaller. Those revenue synergies, by the way, are, are companies that often provide cost synergy as well. So if you look at the performance then of those 20% of companies that announced, you see that the excess total return to shareholders. So this is beating your competitors. It, it's, you know, we fixed this on your industry. You see an excess TRS of an annual performance 2% above your peers for those companies that announced, and you see about 4% below your peers for companies that didn't announce. In the Americas, we see more companies than announcing about twice as the number of companies on average announced than the rest of the world. So we ask, we ask practitioners all the time, why is this? And it's pretty simple. What we hear is, one, we believed in the deal. We believed in the strategy of the deal. So that's why we announced. Second, we believed in the value capture. Why did we believe in it? We have experience. We involved our leadership. We got the, you know, we, we made good deep diligence. We found a bunch of information. So we believe in that. The third is, by publicly announcing, we, we put a bit of a onus on our organization to actually deliver. For those of you who've been part of organizations where you've announced, that number hangs out there. Now, we just talked about that sometimes you need to break that number and, and aspire for a larger number, but I think the organization will feel that that is a must-hit number. And if you don't announce anything, then oftentimes there's a lack of information as to what synergies are and, and what our aspirations will be, and, and companies don't often talk about it. So we found this data to be quite interesting. The last thing I would add, or maybe two things, the companies that announce, it's not that they're paying a lower premium. In fact, they're paying a higher premium, so that's actually not driving these results. They're paying about a 48% premium versus, I believe, 45% for the companies that aren't announcing, so it's not because they're getting better deals, quote-unquote. The last thing, which is kind of interesting, is the companies that perform the best, sort of counterintuitively, are the ones that have a negative deal reaction. So in other words, they announced the market hated it. On average, these companies sort of had a 10% dip in their stock performance. If you look at those companies, they actually outperformed their industry by 8%. So if you, if you announce you have a bad, a bad market reaction day up, good things are coming is what our research is showing. So I think it is both of those things. When we ask people who announce and who make it a habit of announcing, and by the way, the data is quite positive for companies that re-announce. So in other words, I, I estimated $500 million. And six months in, as I open up the aperture, I actually think it's $800 million. Those companies even perform better. So I think it's one, believing in your deal and the sources of value and the strategy behind the deal. And second, actually sending an organizational signal that you believe in this and that the company needs to achieve this. So I think, I think it is both. And again, practitioners, Tell us that. So one thing I'd like to ask about is what's the cause and effect when we talk about synergies and announcements? You know, is it the folks who announce synergies, the ones that are just really confident of their ability to capture them? Or is it the announcement that spurs them on to actually capture the synergies? Or is it a combination of both? Yeah, look, it's clearly it's correlation. There's no, it's very hard for us to figure out exact causation. My my rule of thumb based on this data, which is frankly shocking, I had no, the delta in performance on this excess TRS, it's really big. What I would encourage everybody says, why not? Why not announce, right? And if there's good reasons, strategic reasons, that's fine. If you get an insufficient answer, 
I would pull on that thread because it's going to just weaken your integration. It's going to weaken the, the deal overall as it comes into the organization. If there's a lack of alignment, a lack of understanding of the value prop, it is a great excuse upon announcement to say, we don't feel comfortable. Why not? And it'll just lead to a healthier deal, whether you actually announce or not. It'll, I think, spark the right kind of conversation that will pay dividends down the road. What kind of one-time integration costs should companies think about as they're factoring in their estimates for synergies from a deal? It's amazing how many clients ignore that there's not great rules of thumb, and we see significant variability. Now, these are below-the-line costs. They're one-time in nature. They often don't mean you do or do not do the deal. They often don't mean it's not a good ROI. If you have to pay $100 one time to get $100 in recurring synergies, that's a great investment that you do every time. But they really can have a material impact on cash flow, and then your, 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 you know, your finance function, your board will care quite a bit. We, we've seen quite a number of misses based on kind of faulty assumptions or incomplete assumptions during the deal cycle that then came to a head later. What we see on average is that companies are paying about 1.1 to 1.2 or call it 1 to 1.2 uh, of integration cost to run rate synergy. So what does that mean? If I feel like on average I'm going to get $100 million in, in synergies run rate, then on average, although it varies widely, on average my one-time costs are about $120 million. Now, the, the variation is significant. Some companies on the 25th percentile across all industries is like 0.6. So that means if I have $100 million in synergies, $60 million of one-time cost. The 75th percentile is two, which means I could spend up to $200 million to achieve that. Uh, again, I think that this is probably not going to prevent you from doing the deal. You know, Jeff, the only thing I would add is that when this discussion typically happens can also be lethal. So typically when you're going you know, to management and the management's going to the board to talk about revising one-time costs, you're right in that crucible of setting synergy targets and thinking about what, you know, how much you're actually going to spend on the deal and then how much you're going to actually ask the organization. So you're kind of a little bit before close and, you know, coming in and saying, God, you know, we underestimated. Frankly, it's a lot more complicated where it's going to be another $400 million in one-time cost or whatever <laughs> the number is going to be. Jeff is right. It doesn't really matter because the ROI is typically quite good, but it does put a lot of scrutiny on the investments you put on the deal or behind the deal which can then have knock-on effects, right, of realizing synergies. So getting this right up front when everyone's thinking about the deal and is excited about the deal is a lot better than coming in with the revision when everyone's worried about the deal, you're thinking about day one. Yeah, so two, two practical so, so takeaways. One would be just really think about the sources of synergies and, and what their, you know, realistic costs are associated with them. If you have things like IT systems, headcount facilities, you are going to be on higher than deals that don't. The second is, so how do you manage this? When, when done well, you manage this like you would synergy savings. You set some top-down guidance and top-down targets. You actually go line by line and say, okay, you're going to save $5 million for this initiative. What's it going to cost? And that actually allows you to prune out things that are, in fact, not good ROI. And then finally, you track it and you make sure the people, the constituents that are actually delivering on synergy are, are in fact, staying within their cost boundaries. All right, before I wrap up, I want to come back to the revenue synergies you alluded to earlier. Um, Andy, you called them a gray area as compared to cost and capital synergies. Can you say a little bit more about that? Companies on average don't feel very comfortable, you know, really putting a number associated with boards to say we don't pay for revenue synergies. That's, you know, it can be just kind of a common way that people think about it. So you've got a hurdle there. 
um, it's also harder to really understand what the value proposition is. So when you think about cross-selling, several things have to be true to get that dollar, right? You've got to sell to the same customer. Within that customer, it's got to be the same buyer. That buyer has to have basically the same buying process, and your sales rep has to have both capacity and the technical know-how on how to sell that product effectively. You know, all of those things have to be true to have a really solid cross-sell, for example, target or aspiration. You know, when you think about redundant managers in the treasury function, only one thing has to be true, that two people do that job. It doesn't mean you shouldn't go after it as aggressively, but there are a few things that typically impede people's ability to deploy and realize those synergies. I think a common understanding of revenue synergies actually is elusive. We found hundreds of deals, we have hundreds of deals in our database that have announced revenue synergies. So we're running some of the analysis we've actually looked at to see how do those companies perform? Are they more likely to, to grow? Are they more likely to achieve and outperform their peers? But, but again, most companies are not announcing revenue synergies. Most companies, in fact, are not even paying for revenue synergies. And I think that can be a mistake. I mean, a, a couple lessons learned. Look, they take longer. They require investment. They are less likely to realize than cost synergies. However, they're extremely important. If you're actually going back and saying, did we achieve revenue synergies? Was the deal thesis, in fact, correct, that we had an opportunity to cross-sell, that we had an opportunity to leverage this new channel, that we had an opportunity to leverage their great sales force and their capabilities? Knowing if that actually happened is a great way to inform future deal flow, right? It also really tests quantitatively the capability of your organization. So, you know, a targeted approach, the same kind of thing we've talked about, where you're setting the top-down guidance, you're actually tracking performance in the same way you would cost, you're understanding that it's going to take a little longer, and you're not just rolling them into budget and forgetting about if it's a revenue synergy or not is, is, is sort of what we see work really well. Understanding the sources of revenue synergy, and there's kind of three good places that we can categorize. One is where you sell. So is the revenue synergy due to where you sell? That includes new channels. That includes cross-sell to existing customers. That includes geography expansion. Is it how you sell, right? This is where the sales force effectiveness or channel coverage matters. Or is it what you sell? Is it bringing new products, new bundles to market? Decomposing where your revenue synergy comes from uh, can often be a great way to, to provide some structure and honestly it helps you validate which of these you're more likely to achieve. Andy, Jeff, thanks so much. And thank you to everybody who joined us today. A transcript will be posted on McKinsey.com under the Strategy and Corporate Finance section, where you can also find links to previous episodes and related materials. And if you'd like to receive our latest insights in the future, you can sign up for email updates on our website, follow us on Twitter to MCK Strategy, or connect with our community on LinkedIn via the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for joining us. We look forward to having you join us again soon on our next episode of Inside the Strategy Room.